Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, greetings. That's all you, the folks out there. Make a little noise. We are, we are live at Brew Chatter in uh, beautiful Sparks, Nevada, I want to say. Yep, Sparks, Nevada. Sparks, right next to Reno. It is like Reno's temple. It's right there. It's, you know, tightly attached. Yes? No? Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Where's Temple Offensive? No. Um, um, uh, appendage. <laughs> appendage. It's like the dangling uh, participle, I want to say, yeah. of, of, uh, of, uh, of Reno. Beautiful area. Wonderful place. And, and you were saying you've never been here before. Yeah, it's my first time. First, first time? time first time up in Reno? I think Reno first, area? Yeah. I mean, we went to Tahoe many years ago right? with John, our good friend. Yes. But, um, yeah, yeah. we haven't really graced Reno with our presence that I have. Right. I have. Both of them. Okay. I love I love it up here. I love Reno. I love the people up here are fantastic. It's 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 different than a lot of places. Right? Yeah. People around here are just friendly and you know, they also got their own like don't mess with me attitude, but kind and generous is is absolutely the way to describe Reno and the, uh, the homebrew scene and the beer scene up here. It's fantastic. We went out to Revision Brewing last night. Right. Yeah, that was a good time. And just, just had a had a had a heck of a time. Um, we left with cases of beer, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we tasted all sorts of special stuff and sours and everything else. It was it was like a giant party. And, it really uh, was a good time. Yeah, kind of fun. And, as you're saying, some of the local uh, people started bringing bottles out and sharing with us, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, met a bunch of folks. So yeah, so place. maybe we'll repeat that again tonight. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I don't know where, but. Uh, uh, lots of fun. I also went by Shushboom. Uh, Jason, friend of mine, uh, he he came by multiple times over the years to learn some stuff to open his place, and he's done an amazing job uh, building that place. I'm I'm really impressed with just the uh, the construction alone. Okay, well, we'll check that out. Too. Yeah, I had his alt beer. I thought it was delicious. Oh, nice. Um, don't get alt very often. Right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I said I picked the alt. Because you never see them on tap anywhere, right? right. But uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. So, really great place to come and visit. If you've not been to Reno, come up to Reno, have some fun up here. Um, they got everything: yeah. gambling to breweries to big you know, hotels, big hotels. You got the Virginia City. I mentioned Virginia oh, yeah. City. Yeah. Really cool, touristy little gold rush town. But they got historic things to look at as well. Uh, you know, speaking of historic things, ah, what kind of what aspect of history are you thinking of? Brewing history. Oh, okay. Homebrew history. history. Who's who's uh, really just made a major 
change to uh, homebrew through their innovation. I believe that would be our good friend, John Blickman. That's right. If you have brew chatter, you can pick up cool things like the, uh, the beer guns, the Blickman beer guns. Yeah. Uh, you know, really great guy, great, great bunch of folks that have, uh, you know, created a ton of cool ways to innovate your brew day. You know, all the, the brew the brew kits, the, the beer labor saving equipment. Yes. And uh, making your, your beer day more fun. Even, even without drinking. That's right. I don't drink during my brew day. How many people drink during the brew day? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much uh, everybody. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I couldn't right. Well at least you can blame it on something, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, today, like I said, we're at uh, the lovely brew chatter. If you're up in Reno. You gotta stop by. Best homebrew shop around. Lots of great fresh ingredients. Uh, wonderful, uh, you know, gear like flicking gear here, and most importantly, uh, the owners, uh, Josh and RJ. Um, like I said, I was at Shish Boom and I was talking to one of their guys there, and they're like, I mentioned brew chatter. They're like, oh, we love those guys. They're so kind, so nice. They like called when they were closed. Left a message and they're like an hour later they called me back and say hey what do you need so people love you out there they're they're folks you guys like brew chatter too right oh yeah there you go huh huh yeah give it up for brew chatter we kindly uh flown uh john out here i drove yeah. and then uh put us up in a hotel and everything else really you know first class treatment and really really greatly appreciated yeah, it's it really has been uh, easy trip, lazy flight, right? Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to today's show. Fantastic. Looking forward to hearing your questions and, and experiences. And, you know, You've got a sweet Blickman uh, cap on. I, yeah, I had not, I had not uh, noticed that until now. <laughs> yeah, it uh, keeps my ears warm. <laughs> <laughs> what about the rest of your head? It does it works well for the bald spot too? Actually. Yeah. yeah. There you go. That's where it's puffy in the back. Yeah. Really give you a little bald spot, a little room to breathe. Yeah. yeah. I, I figured it's like, oh yeah, we'll be inside. I won't need my sweatshirt. And then, of course, the open garage door accessibility. Hey, and, I need uh, some air in here. I am a weak, delicate flower, and I need I need ventilation. I, w- I would think you'd need 70 degrees Fahrenheit as well, but no, <laughs> you're good. <clears throat> Speaking of logo gear, here's my, my latest shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this became, quickly became my favorite. Crappy beer makes baby Jesus cry. Uh, nice. Yes. <laughs> That's nice. Uh, somebody, I, I started wearing it um, around, around the holidays, and people would say, oh, yeah, a great Christmas shirt. I'm like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm not going to wear it year-round. Uh, yeah. Crappy beer makes baby Jesus cry, which is, that's a fact. That's, it's just stating a fact. Yeah, I, I believe. What uh, other facts we can say? Uh, today, uh, our, our thought was we just get some questions from all you folks. So prepare your questions. Be, be ready. Yeah, and, then, uh, and the size of the crowd here today, Jamil. I mean, you know, look at the thousands of people that crammed into the shop. I don't think I don't think it's more than five thousand, but I do think it's it's yeah. probably it's huge. Cool, it's closing it's in. Tremendous. It's closing yeah. in on that. It is it is a huge crowd. <laughs> Not to say you're all huge. You're you're but you are many of you. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, let's do this. Let's take a short little break. We'll come back. 
we'll have uh, your questions live after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're live here at uh, Free Chatter in Spartan, lovely Sparks, Nevada. Where there's tons of breweries around, so if you come out here, not only do they have their little bar where they've got uh, you know five, six beers on, uh, and they're always you just get any one of them, they're all delicious. I'm having the Sierra Nevada uh, uh, Powder Day there you uh, go. Okay. Uh, beer, uh, delicious, and you're having the Alibi Porter. Yeah, I was in more of a Porter mood this morning. Well, you know, I'm telling myself this resembles coffee, so. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, let's, let's, let's kick it off. Uh, who has a question here in the crowd? Come on. All right. Step right up. What's your name? Mike. Mike. All right. So I've been uh, struggling with top aroma and uh, with my IPAs. So I was just wondering, you guys, what's your method? How do you achieve that? I mean, you guys were just at revision. They have some of the best hop aromas on the right. IPAs. All right in the world i would argue so yeah. so what's the secret I, I like to get my nose right down into the cup <laughs> you know, that, then i get lots of pop on that one but um yeah there's, there's 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 a few a few tricks uh to it and uh uh one of them is uh layering in different hops so you want to you want to pick pick stuff that uh you know you've got uh you know various hop compounds you know, you know, the, the single hop thing works well if your malt bill is really low. You know, the bigger your malt bill, the more character malt, malt you put in there, you know, crystal and stuff like that, the harder it is to get that aroma out of and the flavor. It really does tamp those things down. So try and make a, a lighter uh, beer, you know, just all base malt. You know, some of those really popping beers, it's all just base malt and... Uh, a bit of you know, dextrose, and then that really lets the hop shine. Make sure that you know your your finishing pH is correct, your water is is correct for what you want to do. All those things add a little bit to it as well. But uh, the main thing is that, and then you know picking a uh, a uh, a yeast that will you know expresses more hop aroma that helps. And then um, what else? 
Well, what, what well you, I guess to follow up with that, it's like in terms of the dry hopping and yeah. you know, your techniques for when you actually dry hop or how much you're looking yeah. to dry hop or something like a, a revision IPA that has right, that right. nose that's so, so amazing to me. I, I've always been trying to replicate that and okay. unable to. A couple of things that help. One is, you know, in your whirlpool, all the, the hops that you're throwing in the kettle and all that, you know, first word and all that stuff, that doesn't do anything. Right. You, you just skip all that. And you go just whirlpool. And you you can get a surprising amount of bittering from the whirlpool. Just whirlpool, and you can take that whirlpool temperature down to maybe like one seventy five Fahrenheit, and you'll get a considerable bit more aromatic and flavor out of that. And then on the dry hop, what we've been doing at Heretic is we'll actually throw the dry. We'll wait until fermentation's over because we need to harvest the yeast, but then we'll throw the the dry hops in, and we will pump the tank around we will circulate the tank for about you know three hours a little less than three hours you don't want to do more than three or four hours and that really extracts the maximum from the dry hopping and then you can get rid of the dry hops we let it settle overnight and then we dump them um you don't need any longer than that for dry hopping but the uh, recirculation. Yeah. Yeah. Agitation, yeah. you just swirl right. your fermenter. Your that's that's what I used to do, homebrewing. And I didn't know, you know, why I was doing it, but I thought, well, it would kind of stir the hops up into suspension. I'd get more out of them. So I'd dry hop and like a carboy. And then I got this technique of rocking it and I could swirl everything up into the, into the, uh, into the column. Uh, beers, I wanted to attenuate a bit more and swirl the yeast up that same way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so you don't have to pump it around necessarily if you're doing carboys or buckets or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're big ass fermenters, 120 barrel fermenters, you need to, uh, need to pump it. But well, that I actually works. have a like, rip tie, so I can probably... There you go. Nice. All right. Thank you. You ever drink cocktails? Yeah. All right. Uh, your prize for being the first person bold enough to step up and ask you a good question. It's a right. four-pack, a uh, mixed pack of uh, some heritage cocktails. All right. Thanks, sir. Yeah. There you go. See? The rest of you shouldn't be so shy. <laughs> you would have won. The question about the cocktails. Yes. So when you do those, do you do, do, you do the uh, like the base whiskey, vodka, gin to that and add juice when you're canning those? Or do you actually do the full distillate and just distill it with all those flavors and then came straight from distilling. A good question about, uh, you know, how the process of making ready to drink cocktails and can't, um, <clears throat> if it's like all the flavors go in, then you distill it or you distill and then add the flavors. It's the, it's the latter. You distill and then add the flavors because the distillation process, it, it depends on what you're doing because you will get some of the character of the things you throw in to distill. So um, when they do stuff like, uh, you know, apple pie or something like that, a lot of times they'll add the apples or the apple juice and then they'll distill that with the, with the uh, corn or whatever to, to get some of that flavor in there. Um, but uh, the way that we're doing these cocktails is they're made like traditional cocktails. So you make the spirit first and then just like a bartender would, we'll assemble, um, you know, whatever it is for a lemon drop, well, the sugar, the, the lemon juice, all that stuff. And we'll do all that in a, in a tank, a large tank. We'll 
carbonate it if need be, and then uh, we'll go ahead and transfer it out and package it up. So it takes about three days to make a, a tank full of uh, cocktails and package it. Um, beer takes three and a half weeks. Yeah. So there's a huge time and labor savings with cocktails. If, you, if you're if you're opening a a brewery, consider open a distillery instead, or a distillery <laughs> and a brewery. But the margins are much higher on on cocktails. The the labor is far less, and uh, you know it's it's a great thing. Yeah, the the industry right now, beer is suffering. Craft craft brewers are suffering right now. Um, there's there's some downward pressure on the market. There's pricing pressure. Uh, the cost of everything is skyrocketing. Um, so it's it's a real struggle. Um, but uh, you know, with with the cocktails. Uh, you save a ton of labor and you, uh, you know, you have a longer shelf life and uh, your, your time to produce is, is much less. Do you actually make the, the spirits that they are taking you? Yeah, like so, well, we do both. So okay. we'll, we'll, we'll make spirits um, that we'll use for, you know, our flavored vodkas. We'll make spirits for our whiskeys from our, all from our beer and we put in barrels, all that stuff. When we do, the majority of uh, uh, you know vodka-based uh, cocktails will just buy the vodka. So we found a really good supplier, high-quality stuff, and it's just vastly cheaper to have somebody big produce it for you than on our. We have a hundred and seventy gallons still. We can run about one hundred fifty gallons out of it at a time, and so you know it takes quite a while, and you get not a whole lot. So. For bottled spirits, it makes sense, but for uh, for cocktails, yeah, yeah, need more. Yeah. Good question. All right, uh, I would give you, I would give you a choice um, of beers. Um, there's worry. That's a two-year-old Chardonnay barrel-aged uh, Golden Golden. The juicier now, which you you mentioned, yeah, uh, enjoy. The caramel Mucchiato, which is uh, like a, a caramel macchiato at Starbucks, except it's beer. And our shallow grade, or Winport. Please choose. Oh, wise man, took the $10 a can worry. <laughs> nice. It is delicious. All right. Good question, man. And I'm sorry, what was your name? Chris. Chris. All right. Mike and Chris. Helping the show uh, succeed. Um, do you have a question from our, our our listeners? Yes, I do. And and if you if you want to have us answer questions, you can always uh, come to an event like this at, at Lovely Brew Chatter, or you can uh, email them into Brew uh, uh, Strong at thebrewingnetwork.com. Yeah. I'm not sure if we ever answered this one before, but it was towards the top of the list, so I'll yeah. give it a shot. Mike asks, uh, I have two questions regarding cons- uh, considering pooling the beer, specifically Vienna lager, after diacetyl arrest. Hmm. I know that cooling too rapidly can cause the yeast to express heat shock proteins, lowering the quality somebody, of the beer. Somebody who clearly uh, uh, read the, the yeast book. Yep. Currently, my routine is cooling the beer at a rate of about 0.7 C every 12 hours. It's about a degree and a half towards two degrees. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that's fine. Then I lager my beer for a few weeks, and then often I reuse the yeast. Uh-huh. 
Is that cooling rate safe? Yeah. Yes. If I rack my beer first or at some time during cooling to separate it from the yeast sediment, can I cool the beer more rapidly? What rate would not jeopardize beer quality? So at uh, at Heretic, what we do, and what I did as home brewer was uh, I would go like a couple degrees a day, whatever. It, it just depends on how much of a hurry I was in. Uh, but a heretic will do three degrees in the morning. Morning guy comes in, reduces temp by three degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, reduces by three degrees Fahrenheit on the settings. Okay. And that way, uh, we're doing about six degrees Fahrenheit per day. It's about three C. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's that's fine. You end up the real clean lager that way. Yeah. You just don't want to go too fast because. Uh, what it does is there's some precursors of uh, esters that the yeast are still kind of working through. Yeah. And they'll, they'll have internally. And then if you crash chill it, they will express that, in a, you know, as they rapidly go towards you know, survival mode. Yeah. Makes so you sense. Take, it, take it slow and easy. Yeah. Um, the same thing happens when you're trying to, uh, you know, make starters and make healthy yeast. You know, the, that temperature drop actually helps in that case makes them you know bundle up their glycogen reserves and oh yeah so there's a point at the starter where if you're trying to grow yeast like the commercial yeast uh there were growers do there's a certain point in fermentation where they crash chill it and it causes the yeast to kind of like you know bundle up yeah and then uh you know they have their temperatures they got all their own thing yeah a lot of the you know, I know that we we throw out a lot of numbers, and generally we're trying to be conservative. We're trying to kind of put a best practice out there, yeah. a guideline. Um, you know, three degrees every twelve hours. Yeah, that's really safe. That's you fun. could probably go higher. And and really, we also overgeneralize about the yeast itself. Like this is a number that works for all yeast when there really sure. is a lot of individual. Uh, character to different strains. And um, so I think even if you had doubled the, you know, these, these uh, cooling rates, you'd probably still be fine. Uh, Again, it can depend on which yeast strains you're using, um, how healthy that fermentation was to begin with, you know, and a number of factors. So, um, you know, I guess my, my, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, What's the point you're trying to make, Jeff? This is not, we're not spouting gospel, we're spouting guidelines. I, I don't know about you, but I'm spouting gospel. You are, you are the Pope. I, I am true. known as the Pope. Yes, uh, that's yeah. true. All right. Oh, just <laughs> I've, to... got a, I've got a trivia question uh, for everybody. Uh, what is John Palmer's uh, uh, nickname? I'm called the Pope. Uh, Mike McDowell is called Tasty. What is John Palmer's nickname? You say Palmer's? Yes, so you say the Palmer's. As known on the Brewing Network. Oh, come on. Somebody's got to know it. Mm-hmm. Got some young folks here. Oh. No? No? Oh. I don't know. Friends of Porter. Friends of Porter, you, can, you, you, you certainly can. Uh, and, and y'all remember Casey? Casey. Um, y'all uh, can pull out your phone and, and Google it. I don't care. 
That's John Palmer's nickname. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let's take another quick short break. Okay. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're down here in the beautiful uh, brew chatter land. Yep, Sparks, Nevada. Home of bighorn sheep, caribou, and penguins. (laughs) (laughs) Penguins? Yes, I think that that sounds correct. Sounds accurate to me. Uh, all right. Another question from the assembled multitudes. Yes. Can you explain your process for yeast harvesting in sure. a commercial environment as well as a environment? Yes. That's uh, a great question. I got time for a full show. No problem. Uh, what's your <laughs> name? Chris. Chris. Good question. Um, so home brewing, what I did was I'd wait for the, the yeast to flocculate. You know, uh, you can see it in a, you know, through a carboy, you know, the, the yeast, the, the beer is cloudy and that starts to clear and that yeast falls to the bottom. If you harvest too soon, um, you're getting the most flocculent yeast that, you know, the yeast had dropped out first and they don't attenuate as much. So you want to catch some of those later yeast. You don't want to get all those later yeasts um, because some of them stayed in suspension too long. You know, petite mutants and things like that. that could less flocculent. Less flocculent. You end up starting selecting for really a haze-producing yeast. Um, so <clears throat> I would wait for it to settle out. I would transfer the beer to uh, a, a corny keg for, for carbonation. And then I'd shake the carboy up, you know, the last little bit of liquid that's in there. You take out pretty much all the beer. You know, it's impossible to get all of it out. There's always enough to, to shake up the yeast. If not, you can take, uh, you know, sterile water, you know, that's been boiled and cooled and pour that in there if you need. And then use that to shake it around and break up the yeast. And then I'd transfer it all into like liter size, two liter size, uh, what I call Nalgene poly, polypropylene uh, containers that are sterile. Pour it into there. Uh, shake it up really well. Uh, add some water. Shake it up really well. And then what you see fairly quickly is um, you know, the Brunhoff, you know, the brown little chunks and uh, dead yeast, all that will fall to the bottom and form a little dark layer down there. And then up at the top, you'll see kind of a really light, creamy uh, color uh layer that's a lot of uh you know dead yeast hulls and things like that yeah. so once i got that to separate out i would decant off the top throw that away then i would transfer the nice creamy suspended, suspended yeah. yeast layer in the middle pour that to another container and then throw away what's at the bottom so by doing that it separated out the you know that's the, the dead crap on the bottom and the you know, the floaty stuff, the on, floaty top. stuff on top. It just kept the good stuff because there's way more yeast than you need. So don't be afraid to, you know, decant off and, you know, clean that up. And you can do that multiple times if you want. 
just use regular tap water. You want some minerals in there. Um, you know, no chlorine, uh, you know, you boil it or you can can it to get, get yourself some, uh, you know, some, some sterile water and then that. In the professional arena, commercially, what we do is um, we just transfer, in, in our scenario at Heritage, we transfer tank to tank through a sterile, we sterilize the loop with hot water and then uh, or pasteurize a, a loop with hot water and then uh, we open up one tank and we transfer over. So we'll, we'll do a similar thing where we'll drop the initial stuff out of the tank because it's got a whole lot of dead stuff that dies quickly. And you want that middle cut. So the cone will, will fill up. And the top is the least flocculent. A lot of really bad stuff is on the bottom. So you want to get out of the middle. If you transfer too fast, if you pull too fast, you'll you'll pull through and you'll just get a tunneling effect of the beer through the center of the, that, that yeast mass. You won't, you won't really get what you want. So you need to transfer slow enough for that. Pull off the bottom, dump it. We um, have flow meters that count, uh, you know, the amount, and we also have a lab who test the, you know, concentration of the yeast uh, cells per mill. Then we don't have any mills. We need to pump through the uh, through the flow meter, and that's how we that's how we pitch. A lot of breweries they will harvest the yeast off of their tanks and hold it in a uh, separate tank. Uh, yeast brick uh, that's on load cells, and then they'll pitch by weight. They have new modern uh, 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 products that will uh, count the amount of cells for you and viability for you as it, as it pumps through, and you punch in essentially how much yeast you want, how much live yeast you want for that. Uh, but we don't, we don't have one of those. Like I said, we just use a flow meter because those things are expensive. I'm terribly cheap, and uh, you know, it's kind of the way it goes. Good question, Chris. Well, I have one additional piece to that. So, oh, using a, a two parter, yes, yeah, a conical, yes, a homebrew conical. And I want to, I've been reading about this harvesting, and they talk about the word washing, and I don't understand the washing. Is that what you're right. talking about? Adding clean water, and right? So, there's yeast washing and there's yeast rinsing. The old washing thing was uh, you would add enough acid to kill off the bacteria, but not quite kill the yeast. Because yeast can withstand a lower pH than the bacteria can. And so that was washing. You'd take your yeast, you add the acid, all that stuff. You know, assuming you had a, uh, uh, you plated it out, you found contaminants to it, you do that. I don't recommend doing that. If you if there's contamination of that yeast or you're worried about there's contamination of that yeast, I would just throw that pitch away and get yourself a new pitch. It's not worth doing that because uh, you're risking, um, you know, contaminating future batches. That's not worth holding on to. Rinsing is just adding sterile water, shaking it up and letting the natural, uh, you know, weight differences on the yeast pop it to the top and pop it to the bottom. That's rinsing. Um, and it's super easy to do, you know, if you're if you're already harvesting yeast and, you know, making clean containers, it's a good way to go. It's kind of like an Oreo cookie. You want the stuff in the middle. Yes, you want the creamy middle. You don't want the cookie on the bottom or the cookie on the top. Perfect. Good point. Thank you. All right, Chris.
Uh, you are a winner. What would you like? tanks and um uh you know collect the yeast and then pitch lock of weight back out of that that slurry in the tank um that's what a lot of breweries do as well um there's other methods but generally we like to do you know tell the tone it's just it's cheaper it's more effective what's your thoughts on that huh? how many generations you did use on that Oh, generations of yeast. Yeah, so uh, generally we want to kind of hold it into 10 to 15 generations. Um, we've gone into the 20s and then breweries go into the hundreds um, and the yeast kind of drifts along with what they do. But we like what, what the yeast companies give us. And so we, we tend not to go more than 10 to 15. So um, the... The thing is, it's not just 10 to 15 batches. It's, you know, because we'll have a, a, a pitch of yeast off of a tank. That first pitch, or that, we'll start up a new pitch of yeast. It generates, you know, four to five times more yeast than you put in. So from that, we could pitch, you know, another three or four other batches. Generally, you're throwing some away. You, know, you get two to three batches that you will you could disseminate it out to that's only one generation but you've got two to three batches and it's like you know the old shampoo commercial or whatever it was <laughs> friends get two friends whatever so from those you can do the same thing again and so you can do you know hundreds of batches within 10 to 15 generations so that's what drives the, the price up because a pitch of yeast you know we're talking 15 1600 for pitch of yeast um, and so we have to, you know, kind of spread parse out. that out, spread, spread that pain out across, you know, as many batches as we can. And so that drives it down to where we're, you know, not, you know, paying more than, you know, 20, $30 a batch or so, uh, really helps, uh, you know, lower the cost. The, the, the beers get better and better, uh, acting like the work starts yeah, definitely. Faster. Yeah. Because um, if you see a spot where the yeast will the yeast cake and start to go to like you could see it starting to get tired. Yeah, I mean you what you see is so one of the things that we do is we'll measure you know pH and the and the gravity, you know, each day. And they will they will form a curve for every beer, uh, every yeast, every beer that is really consistent. Every time you brew it, those numbers should be pretty much exactly what they were before. Every time you do it. And if you see it start to trend a different way, it's like it's taking a lot longer to get to the drop um, or you know, change pH. It's taking longer to get to those, those terminal numbers. Then you know that that pitch is, you have a problem with that pitch. Maybe you, you collected you collected the, the yeast too early and you're reusing too much of the early stuff versus the later stuff. Um, 
so it's 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 kind of in there. Um, uh, I forget what your original question. Is. Yeah, it's just on the. Yeah, how do you know when it's done? Right, how do you know? How do you know how many? Right, so um, yeah, uh, when I was home brewing, I mean, I could see a huge difference around you know generation three, where uh, you know really just everything fermented perfectly, gravities are right, everything you know, and the flavor was right. Um, so I always like generation three, four, and five the most. Yeah, I think I got one of the six. Right. And home brewing, the problem is it's hard to do, you know, uh, sanitary transfers, you know, so you end up getting some exposure. So you really don't want to go too deep into into that in your home brewing. If you have all closed transfers, everything you do brewing is closed. Um, and then you can do it, you know, commercially. That's why you can take it further. Um, and then nutrients, a lot of different things. It's easier to, to pitch. You know, you're, it's all proportional, but still, you know, it's a giant cone of yeast. It's easier to kind of select that, that perfect center um, commercially. So, uh, yeah, that's, you know, what we do. Yeah. I, I just like hearing, hearing how y'all do this. It's uh, good details. Right, right. Um, and, you know, we learned a lot over the years, uh, you know, about, about the, the best methods of, of doing things. And that's one of the, the great things about commercial brewing is you are, you can repeat experiments and, and techniques and you can make tweaks to them because you're, you're seeing the results, you know, almost daily and you're brewing every day. You, yeah. you, you see results every day. So we're able to do tests of, okay, I want to do this. I want to try this nutrient. I want to change this, this measurement. You know, when you're home brewing, it's hard to have that many iterations of a beer. It, you know, you, it, 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 you know, it takes a lot. So, um, uh, you know, commercial brewing, that's one of the things I really loved about it is I'd be like, all right, we're going to make this change. We're going we're to try this and see what happens. And, you know, for, some of the beers like we make uh, you know a huge amount of make America juicy again. So if we did like a 30 barrel batch and tried a new technique or a new hop or whatever, and it wasn't exactly the same as, as the 120 barrel batch, well, we could just blend it in. I mean, it, it you know, any changes pretty much disappear. You, you know, if it's evident, it's like a quarter of that. The changes we did, we you know, were generally for the better, and we, you know, like, oh yeah. That's that's nice. All right, let me blend that in, and then let's start shifting to doing that. You know, on future batches. Yeah, well, I know you'd said that with the uh, juicier now that um, you worked quite a while stabilizing the haze. Hmm. You know, what were the, what were some of the practices that you were able to implement to help do that? Right. Um, the so a number of things. Getting something that is hazy all the time is it's water. It's the right amount of, you know, oats and wheat. Um, you can do too much and that fights you and it starts oh, making the beer more clear again. Yeah. It almost acts like findings. Yeah. So you don't want to do too much. You don't want to do too little. You, um, uh, so it's, it's, it's really the, uh, 
those those grains. It's the water. It's um, also doing the whirlpool and uh, recirculating the dry hop. Uh, does a much better job of building those protein tannin complexes okay. that you know are permanent A's. So you get the right amount of hops, right amount of grains. You recirculate the whole thing, stir it all up, and um, and then the, the, the water, the pH makes a difference. Okay. And you can get something really uh, tremendously. Uh, somebody sent in a question about that and asked for a show about how to make you know the best nipas, and uh, we should do it. Yeah, uh, get all my, my my details and numbers down, and uh, we can get very specific advice out of it. Okay. So when you when you talk when you said the water just now, with is that in regard to the water chemistry or the water to grist ratio? Water water chemistry. Okay. So the right right mineral content, um, and getting the right pH. A lot of it gives that softness. Um, you know, adding salt. I mean, we really don't add salt to any beer but the hazies. So you know, regular old table salt. Yeah. Um, what would be the right pH to get something to, to stay hazy? Uh, somebody did a study recently about pH and haze, um, maximum haze. And what was it? The, the, the lower it was, the more hazy it was, or the, or the higher it was? It's, it's, higher. It's, all the, it's all in the four range. Yeah. You want acidic. You want to be pretty acidic. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. It, I ended up reading it, and I was just like, well, yeah, it's really not. It didn't make much sense to me. You know, it's kind of like, okay. Uh, you want to be in that standard beer range of, you know, four to around, five. yeah, four, as low as four, two, as high as four, seven. You want to kind of be in the middle, like four, four. Our water is less seven, Right. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty. You have to, pretty. you have to add, you know, uh, some adjustments to the water. You want to get your, your pH generally down your around pH. five, your, your, uh, your mash pH of five, two to five, three. Uh, at the end of the mash, the end of the boil, you want to be around five. Fermentation should take you down into the lower fours. Uh, you get good proper fermentation. Dry hopping will drive it back up, and, and then if you need, you can always add a little bit more acid to kind of bring it back down. Yeah. All right. And since you're on the pH uh, question trade, uh, I don't use it. I always adjust it using minerals, but the five to Right, the five two. We're not huge fans of that, right? Because um, it just depends on you know so many things. John can speak more to the to, to five two, but um, you know. I I I don't recommend five two because it's too much of a band aid. You know, well a, a cure all. When it works, yeah, it works, but yeah, you often have to add a lot of it. And if you take the time to understand what the water is, what your what the mineral composition of your brewing water is, and where it should go, then you can do the specific mineral adjustments to get you there, rather than relying on a lot more of this band aid. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's I don't know, kind of a blunt instrument approach to a problem that deserves more finesse. Yes. Acidulated malt is in yeah. case people couldn't hear on the microphone. He was asking, "Well, what's your name?" 
Yeah. Dan's asking about acidulated malt for adjusting your pH. Yeah. Well, acidulated malt's good. Um, uh, 1% in the grain bill for about a one-tenth pH drop. Um, so, yeah, if you mash, you know, base malt typically mashes in at around 5.8. Um, then you add in your water factors. You may get down to 5.6 or you may bump up to 5.9 or 6, depending on where you are. Um, essentially, malt will help that drop a couple tenths. Um, essentially, you know, it's it's base malt with lactic acid coating. Right. So, uh, yeah, it, it works. It's a good natural tasting acid um, at, you know, one, five percent, even seven percent. It's not really going to affect the, the flavor of your beer. Well, much. you know, the, the whole the whole reason for acidulated malt is for the Germans, for the Reinheitsgebot, right? Right. They couldn't add lactic acid. But if they had malt that had lactic acid on it from, you know, production a mashing process, then they were allowed to add that. So a lot of times it's easier just to use liquid lactic acid. It's the same thing. And then you're not messing with trying to adjust uh, your your total grist ratio and getting the right amount of grist in there. And then if 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 you didn't hit the right mash pH, you don't want to throw in a bunch more grist trying to drive it down. Yeah. Um, so that's that's why I kind of preferred the lactic acid. Uh, we at, at on the commercial level, a lot of people use phosphor. It's stronger. It's more um, flavor neutral. Flavor neutral, and it's got more uh, acidifying uh, power. And so uh, you use something that's you know eighty five percent phosphoric, and it really takes very little, and there's very little flavor. flavor but lactic is a is a great option. Yeah. Good question. Did you want a beer, Dan? Sure. <laughs> Do you see it now? There you go. All right. You guys are such a lively crowd. You make, you make, so, much, you make so much noise. Yeah. It really is great. I appreciate everybody coming down and supporting yeah. our, our great sponsor, Free Chatter. It's nice to know that people actually listen to the show you know, and right. hear what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. I've always not believed that. I, I always thought there was actually no listeners that we were <laughs> not. They were not really posting these on the Internet and that we were just fooling ourselves. Yeah, yeah, that's what my children tell me. You know. <laughs> right, right. Dad, you're fooling yourself. Yeah. Oh, I got another question. Uh, I mean, I mean, homebrew is your silver carbonate or something under carbonate. How do you kind of reduce carbonic acid uh, effect on your beers mm. over carbonate? Is there a way? Uh, oh, I don't think carbonic acid is an issue. Um, Overcarbonate. I mean, it does beer. it does play a, a role in the the overall impression of the beer. Higher carbonation, right. yeah, yeah. But it's not as acidic as you know uh, some of the other things we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Car- taking your beer to a carbonation of say two volumes or three or volumes, even four volumes. Yeah, you're going to get um, like 0.05 difference in pH. It's uh, you know half of a tenth. So um, carbonated versus uncarbonated when you when you check measuring pH. Um, so yeah, I, I don't yeah carbonic acid in itself is not going to contribute much flavor, but the effect of carbonation 
on your beer, especially in competition, can be significant. Um, and usually it's a case of undercarbonation coming in right. where you're tasting a beer and it just feels flabby. And it's like you, you write on the score sheet, you know, if you just had more carbonation, I think this would have been livelier, scored better. Right. Um, you know, rarely when we get an overcarbonated beer into competition, you know, you know, are we going to let that bring the beer down? Oh, but I'll tell you this. Um, a lot of judges who don't know anything about judging beer, <laughs> yeah. when they see something that's, you know, overcarbonated, they assume it's infected. Right. Yeah. So that may or may not be the case. You know, um, <clears throat> most of the time when you get a gusher on the table, yeah. it's got some sort of problem. Um, but you know, you can overcarbonate something too and have it be clean and, and clear. But yeah, you know, there's people that they in their mind it's infected. So that can be dangerous in competition. That as well. can. Yeah. 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 I know better. You know better. <laughs> <laughs> the two of us know better. Uh right, right, right. That's a good question. I'm sorry, what was your name? Brent. Brent? Uh one last beer here for you. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy. It's our shallow grave porter. Uh, all right. Uh, let's see. I think it's time for one last break. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, I don't have all my little tricks yeah. uh, to do here. Okay. My little timers and notes and all that stuff. So I'm just going off of uh, my mental acuity. Yeah. That's what it's called, right? Uh, so we'll take another short break and when we come back we'll have more of your questions right after this back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys brew strong alright we're back <laughs> I'm just gonna ask who's who Came up with the robust porter with the black widow. Oh, the black widow, the robust porter? Yeah. Um, so who's is that John's or that yours? No, that's two mills, yeah. Yeah. That's two mills? That's all the all the recipes in the book are mine. Um with the exception of you know, something from like Tasty, something with Mike Riddle. You know, I have a few in there. Um, uh, 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 Steve Christian. Um yeah, but the Black Widow Porter, uh, really, that's my recipe, but the foundation of it was from our good friends at uh, More Beer down in the in the uh, Bay Area, California. Um, I went in, and I had been um, brewing, uh, you know, chocolate hazelnut porter and, you know, a couple other things. And I was using like a, I think I started off a kit or something like that. And I wanted to make my own porter. I was really getting into porters. I loved uh, Black Butte Porter from Deschutes. I thought it was fantastic. And so I went in and uh, Chris Graham there, I was like, hey, I want, you know, an all grain, you know, I was, that was extract and, and specialty grains. So I, I said, I want to do an all grain porter, robust porter. And he was like, let me take you to Regan, Regan Dillon. Uh, who worked there for a long time. Um, Designed I, a leather. I assume he's still alive. I don't know. He could be. 
Um, but he really was into porters. And off the top of his head, he rattled off a porter recipe that was mainly like baseball and a couple, two or three crystals and, you know, some Munich and some other stuff. And that was the recipe that I started with, uh, all grain. And then I made some tweaks to it and adjusted it and uh, kind of dialed it in for, for what uh, became the Black Widow Porter. And the Black Widow Porter, I remember uh, I went out to brew and man, there were black widows like coming out of the hoses or thing. It was uh that's that's why it's called Black Widow Port. Um but uh yeah, that and then the, the beer that uh, Brent just got, the shallow grape porter, is essentially that recipe but simplified for commercial brewing. So commercial brewing, you know, storing like a ton of different, you know, specialty malts and you know measuring them out and you know weird portions it's like i changed it to like one crystal malt everything in sacks you know you either do a full sack or a half sack that's how commercial brewers work they don't tend to unless it's something maybe like you know roasted barley or something like that you'll do you'll weigh it out in weird portions and not do a full sack but anything else, you want to do it in full sacks or half sacks because it's just such a nightmare to store all these little partial sacks of, of malt. Yeah. So the only complaint I have about that recipe, yeah, my cat goes empty so goddamn fast. <laughs> it really will cause a hole in the keg. I think that's, that's the that's the You start with problem. five gallons and that goes too quick. So then I go to ten gallons. And that goes quicker. How does that happen? It just goes. There you go. And that's definitely, especially this time of year. I've seen, I've seen that happen. It's a great beer to have. It's time of year. How many, how many people here have brewed something from brewing plastic stuff? Oh, nice. Oh, see, not everybody. Not everybody. So many people with pikers. For the most, and Dr. Homer, I've done a couple of his items that of his book, too. I like them. You guys got great recipes. I mean, you can't go wrong. Right. I think one of the advantages is it's a single source of recipes. So you, you know that if you need to make certain changes to fit your desire on one type of beer, those changes probably apply to all those oh, different recipes. Exactly. I've done some changes with, with um, the red and right, some right. others. I mean, that's red's kind of fallen out of favor, but that's still one of my favorite beers. Oh, I mean, yeah. Me too. You know, and then I, every time I, I can't tell my kid anymore that I've got a red. Because <laughs> son of a bitch would come over and drink my keg. You know? <laughs> so, there you go. And then he won't come over for a couple months. So I just, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. So. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to have something that's consistent that you can kind of, you know, riff off of from there. Um, that's one of the reasons I think that uh, we're really proud about the great plastic styles we did. Yeah. And you guys got it going to Weizenbach too for Halloween, I think. Oh, yeah. That's well, a great one. That's I, a great Halloween beer. Oh, I, I, I almost brought some down for you. Nice, but I'm only down to one or two glasses left, so sorry, <laughs> not a can't can't you know pour it down the sewer of, oh. of John and I. You know, well, if I would have more, oh, but I do have a double also. Nice, I've got it from here right in the watch. It's, it's been kegs, and I'm 
I like to let it sit for about three, four months before I drink it. And that, oh God, it just, your guys' recipe on that is so damn good. All right. I got a question for y'all. How many people have been brewing less than a year? Raise your hand. How many people less than two years? Less than three. Less than five. Less than 10. Just barely. Less than 15. Anybody, anybody, 20 years. Who's, who's brewed more than 20 years? Wow. Uh, 30 years. Really? You're not that old. Don't, don't be lying to me. I remember, I remember being a little kid and reading his book. <laughs> With a highlighter. How long have you been brewing? 30 years in this year. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. The, the war kind of got me. Right, right. I've, uh, how long have I been brewing? Yeah, 33, something like that. I have? Mm-hmm. Damn, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, we both started like uh, what, just around right 1990, 1888. No, I think I was like 10 years later. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, I, I, I think I started, I really don't have a whole lot of idea you know but uh my wife may know but i think it was around 99 19 and 99 okay that's about 10 years yeah Yeah. no i think when we first met you were already uh like had your 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 self-published how to brew by that time yeah because we met at uh mcab in berkeley right right and I already uh, knew. I was already a little like, oh, John, you're so special. Let me, let me sit next to you. Yeah. Well, that's why we're here, because both of you were here. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Struck up a friendship back then. and Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, the it's never really become anything, but, you know. Well, yeah. Being a Berkeley, that kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's there's quite, the, quite the group there that weekend. I mean. Um, our friend Dave Sapsis. Dave Sapsis. There was um, genius of uh, yeah. Uh, shoot, now of course his name escapes me. But I think John Tall may may have been there too. Yeah, yeah, he was there. Yeah, and um, Fritz Maytag. Fr- Fritz was there. Uh, him Ray Daniels and uh, George Fix. Was George there. Fix. That's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, George. First time that George Fix. Yeah. And uh, oh, some some of the BJ, original BJCP members were there. Um, yeah, well, I'm terrible, man. Oh yeah, um, um, the guy who used to do the um, uh, Scott the uh, the, uh, the barley wine festival in, in San Francisco. His name was Josh. Good, you guys are <laughs> terrible at names. I don't feel that bad now. Yeah. You guys to the, to the no. to the MIT or where did you no, I went to Michigan Tech. <laughs> Michigan Tech. I went to uh, UCH. Yeah. But I did not study beer there. Studied yeah. microbiology and writing. <laughs> Your stuff. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, Davis is a great school. And there's something about just being there that makes you end up making beer. <laughs> Any other questions before they wrap this up? 
Uh, right. In Pino, we always had the Strange Root Fest. It's been like three years since we had it. Strange Root uh, Fest. Yes. Three years, oh, Strange Root was like marshmallows and lions. But marshmallows now, and lions in yeah, the same yeah. beer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what nice. would be your guy's Strange Root that you would want to make the surf to the public? Hey, that was my question. <laughs> um, hmm, wow. That's a good what do you do? Oysters. I tell you, just recently, I brewed a beer with persimmon. I had never, I had actually, I don't think I ever eaten a persimmon before. And uh, the, the friend of mine, uh, Tony, uh, at a, he owns a, a, a brewery or a, a, a pub. Um, he had a bunch of persimmons and he brought some over and man, just took my knife out, sliced, sliced them up and just absolutely delicious. Who's eating a persimmon? They're better frozen. <laughs> right. A lot of people don't eat persimmons because you hear bad things about them. But I tell you, when they're fully ripe, they're sweet and delicious. And it's, it's, you know, it's very very fruity. Not I. I, I, I did. I've heard bad things about the Frenchie guy. <laughs> ferment, very ferment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So with the fine like flavors of something like a person, yeah. How would you that? Right. That's a good question because we have that same question because when you taste a persimmon, at least the persimmons I tasted, it was very fruity. It was a bit of apricot in there, a bit of uh, you know grape, a bit of apple, and melon. Was just yeah. melon, yeah, um, just kind of general fruitiness, and it seemed really delicate. So the thing we thought would be an appropriate base beer was American wheat. Um, you know, not a lot of flavor, but you know, good carrier for for that kind of thing. We also figured it would turn out hazy using uh, <laughs> persimmons. And uh, so that's why we're just like, well, if you call it American wheat, it doesn't matter whether it's clear or hazy, it'll be fine. <laughs> we didn't have to worry about it. So the persimmons, uh, we found a local cider maker that was willing to press a bunch of the persimmons into juice. And uh, Tony, you know, went around and the first guy, I guess, let him down and they, he trucked him over to another guy. And he really did a lot of work on, on making that happen. It's really cool. Nice. Uh, so, uh, in that kind of light, you know, character, we we looked at that also. And we thought, well, you know, you could add in some other flavors uh, to, uh, you know, kind of enhance and complement that. And so, if you did, you know, maybe you add some some peach extract or some peach puree. Maybe you add a little bit of, you know apple juice or something just to kind of enhance and lift that you don't want to disrespect the the, the 